Well, first of all, I just want to say Happy New Year. And I saw on the marquee, I saw a, a great one that said, um, New Year, but the same Jesus. And I thought that was such a good reminder that, you know, we don't know what this year is going to bring, but it will all be new and um, maybe some adventures, some maybe some sorrow, some joy. It's just going to probably be all over the place, but new year, but six promises. And I also wanted to give you six promises Six promises that I feel that we are going to need because we don't know what's going to happen in this year. So I thought, here, we, we will um, look at these six promises. And believe me, you will be glad you wrote them down if you're willing to do that. So these are six promises that, that God gave you and I so that in the course of this new year and when, when we get hit with surprises and we, we know we need to hear from the Lord, we know we need to go to his word, but um, what, what should we remember first? How do we know where to go? So here's the first one. God promises you and I that he will be our strength. And I, I know that, that we're going to need that sometime in this year. We're going to have to remember and let the Holy Spirit help us recall that, that he will be there. He will give us the strength, the exact amount. Remember with Daniel. Remember when when his dream just was so overwhelming and he said, I just have lost my strength. I can't even hardly breathe. And how God said, I will breathe into you. I will breathe into you more strength and he will be our strength. Do not be afraid. I have what you need. I will give you the strength you need. So here's number two. God promises that he will always, he will always be there. So he promises that no matter what happens in this year, even though it might not feel like it, sometimes we, we won't feel like he's right there, but we can know it because that's the truth, because that's what he promised, that he will be there. And then the third one, he promises that you and I are in his plan. He's got plans for us. And no matter what happens in this year, we can know that, that it's God's plan. We are in God's plan. And he has a way of even working his plan through our mistakes. And I think that's what we're seeing in this study particularly, that, that God has a way of making sure that we know that he's got plans for us. And the fourth one is... He said, I promise you that I will always hear you. I will always hear you. He, he promises that he, when we cry out to him, when we call out to him, when we just are worshiping him, whenever we make that communication with him, he says, you, I promise you, I promise you, I will be listening to you. And I think that's pretty precious, that the fact that we can know without doubt that he will be listening. And then the fifth one, he says, I promise you that when your boat is rocking, I will give you peace. We can count on him being our peace. And I think this stables us when you know that he will be your peace, that that in the midst of whatever, the unknown, we know he will be our peace. And then the sixth one, he promises that no matter what happens in this year, nothing can separate us from his love. So his love will always be there. So six great promises that he will always give you the strength that you need, that he will always be there. He promises that he's got plans for you and I. He promises that he will always listen. He will always hear us, that he will calm us and give us the peace because he doesn't change. And what he, what he promises he does, and we can hold on to that 
that, that kind of trust will give us peace. And then, and then finally, that there will never be time, no matter what happens, that he will stop loving us. That is, nothing can separate us from his love. So I think that's a great way to start the new year. I think knowing that, that it is a new year, but we have the same Jesus. We have the same almighty, sovereign God who never changes. And then to know that he gives us promises. And we've seen, we've experienced, we've learned that what he says, he does. He promises that. We just have to have the faith to believe that and not give up. So with that, would you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, we thank you for this chance, this opportunity to come again, to be in this place, to open up to this chapter in Esther, to be able to hear you, to be able to almost sense your hands on our cheeks, making sure that we listen like every parent does to a child. You know what's important that we learn. And maybe even tonight we will take this book in a direction that maybe we've never taken it before. But we want to make sure that as we have studied this year, Daniel, Nehemiah, we have studied um, Jeremiah, and we've, we've gone through so many Old Testament books, and, and yet we see so much future prophecy. We see so much revelation, and it's amazing how the pieces of God's word, how they come together how we've learned about chronological order and, and how the timeline, and we've been in this particular timeline, and it's just been so, so rewarding. We've learned so much, and we thank you for that. So now as we begin this new year, and Lord, we know that you are ready to teach, and we are ready to listen as well. We want to learn. And so we just lift our hearts to you, and we desire, we have, a, we have a true desire to want to learn tonight. We really want to hear from you, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. This is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true, and it is all that I need. That's right. We study nothing less than that. So God's word is God's word, and he is going to be speaking. And, you know, there's many different reasons why people think the book of Esther is in the scriptures. And um, like I prayed, maybe we are going to get a whole different kind of idea of why this book is in. And last, you know, two weeks ago, that when we started Esther, we saw in chapter one, we we. I said, if you want to know what the glory of self looks like, if you want to see how someone just is so consumed with himself and their own power and, and, and their own name and, and how, you know, this 180 days of, of drinking and all this display of wealth and, and just pomp. He was, you know, Xerxes was very, very conceited. He wanted every province to be able to see his wealth and what he's achieved. You know, that's what we've seen, haven't we? With Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, they all think that it's them. They all think that they did it. And they take all the credit and so maybe the book of Esther is there for us to see that um, this is what the world looks like without a Savior. This is what the world looks like in hearts that refuse to believe in God. It's such a book of relevant. Re re it's so relevant. It's so very relevant. And, and angry. We saw that, you know, there's nothing worse than a drunken, angry king. And this is exactly what happened. He was so, I mean, they, they you know, were so intoxicated. And, and he's so mad because he wants Vashti. Of course, Vashti doesn't come. And she put her foot down. And, you know, all of a sudden, these nobles and these officials, you know, they're all nervous because, oh, you know, they know their king. And, 
And I think what we're going to see last time and then this time, there's so, you know, it's like if our king's not happy, nobody's happy. So they make every effort to try to appease him and to make him happy. And, you know, he is so totally out of control. You know, he's just out of control. And so they come up with this idea. They come up with this idea, you know, that, you know, that there's just no way that, that, they can give in to Vashti's actions. So, you know, they they tell him to, to, you know, issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persian media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. In other words, there's no woman that's going to be able to do this again. Sign the decree, stamp it. And it said that, verse 21, the king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Memucan proposed. Verse 22, chapter 1, he sent dispatches. Get this. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. So there, you know, there, we have got our women back in their place. And, you know, we talked at length about, you know, this is not what Paul was talking about in Ephesians. This is not in Genesis 3 when God had to set an order. Once sin came in the world, he had to put, he said to the woman, man will be over you. This to the to your husbands, as to the, when when Paul talks about that wives submit yourselves to, the, to your husbands, as to the Lord, that means you are both obedient, and it will work as a team. And there is no one better than the other. You work together because that's the way God intended it, a whole different frame of mind. And these, these particular men in chapter 1, you know, they just had no respect. They, they didn't value the women. And we're going to see it again tonight and may I just say um, you are going to see me shaking my head more than I usually shake it because I am just appalled with chapter two and there's so many parts of this that just so rub me the wrong way and so um, I am going to be very blunt and very verbal and so I apologize already if I get a little too this morning I have to say I have some very old ladies in my Tuesday morning class, a few that are, and I think they heard words this morning that they never heard before. And I think they, they saw an element of, of paganism in the world's culture in ways that, you know, they haven't ever seen. But we have to take it the way it is. It should be appalling to us. We should really see just how relevant it is to our today. And so... Here we go. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. So she's gotten the boot. Now, I don't know whether chapter 2 follows chapter 1. Immediately, he wakes up the next morning. He, he's trying to work through a hangover. Um, he, he starts to realize what has all transpired. You know, he's got a little more control. It's a little more clear to him. Um, I, I don't know. I also read another thing that I think makes good sense is that that um, there's four years between chapter 1 and 2, and it makes perfect sense because it was during this time period that Xerxes fought against the Greeks, and he lost. But that makes sense because remember, even from um, Daniel chapter 2 and 3 about the the, the statue, and and we, we learned that there's... There's empires. There was, there was first the Babylon Empire, and then the Medes and Persian Empire, and then the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire. But this could be a time where the Persian Empire could start to feel the pressure of the Greek. The Greeks started to come at them. 
And maybe Xerxes is feeling a little down and defeated and discouraged because now he is not quite king on the mountain. It's starting to be threatened a little bit. So whichever way you want to think, um, it really doesn't matter, but it does fit the timetable. Okay, then the king's personal attendants proposed this. Very much so, we got to get this king happy. Because when he's miserable, we're all miserable. We all pay the price. So what can we do? And we know him so well. We know what excites him. We know what's important. We know what gets him in a good mood. And so here's the proposition. Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. And, you know, right off the bat, that just rubs me wrong. Because, you know, they don't care about the girls for any other reason than for what they look like. It's just all exterior. It's all the, the beauty, the exterior beauty. And, and that's all that mattered. So let's find these girls girls, these virgins, and let's, let's let the king pick. Now, I heard that, that, you know, they were all required to make an appearance, but then 400 were picked. 400 were picked. Now, again, you know, it's not actually in there. You know, I'm just taking what the theologians and the historians say, but, but it, it does, it's logical. You know, this is one time when I, you'd be glad you had acne, or you'd be you'd be glad that you had you had a little extra few pounds on you. You know, this is the one time you know you think, oh, God, I'm glad I wasn't picked, and and yet maybe because of the or the superficialness, maybe these women thought it was a great honor. But what's so sad is that, you know, I'm sure you've heard this in sermons before, but in case you didn't know, that once a gal has been been with the king, even if it's just a one-night stand, that girl's life is pretty much over. She cannot go back into society. She cannot go and and get a husband and have children. No, she gets put in a harem, a concubine, and she is stuck there. And you think about some of these gals. I, you think about, I think about myself, you know, because one day before this decree, they're just living their lives. They have dreams. They have expectations. They might even think about a man that, that is promised to them. That they, they've already started to think about a family that they might have. And that just within one day's time, they're called and all of that is shot. So they're picking the cream of the crop as far as exterior. Now, let us search and let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. I'm going to keep saying this over and over. Remember, they have no idea who they are. And I think that really stinks. They could care less about any other attributes. And so let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashtai. This advice appealed to the king. Of course it did. And he followed it. See, because he doesn't care. He doesn't care about them. He just cares about being satisfied. He just cares about these women appealing to his needs. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. You know, before we get into Mordecai, I, this lesson brought me back to years ago. And 
when I was a little girl, and I'm sure many of you women remember, remember when there was mother and daughter banquets? And, and it was such a highlight for me. It was a highlight. I loved to go to our church's mother and daughter banquet. And then as I got older, then um, we, oh, I, I could say in the, in the month of May, I could do like 20 mother and daughter banquets. I could do two or three in a day. But I enjoyed them immensely because there would be a section in that program that I would call the little girls. I would call them up, and there was such an array of them. I mean, they were all so different. You know, some who just loved to be, you know, loved to have a pretty dress and and hair and curls, and you could just tell that was just their personality. They loved that. And then you've got the little tomboy who just comes bounding down, and then you've got in all that in between. I mean, who they could care less. They could care less about the exterior, you know. And so I would sit on the floor, and all these little girls would be sitting around me. And, you know, of course, when, when they're three and four, you know, everybody's telling them how cute they are, so they know they're cute. So it's not a real problem. But I know that it's worth talking about because they're going to grow to five, six, seven, eight, nine, and there were a lot of those girls too. And so I did not get discouraged whether there was a three-year-old or whether there was a 13-year-old because this message is just for girls straight across the board. And so I said to them, I said, you know, sometimes when you look in the mirror, every once in a while, does a thought go through your mind? Or maybe not yet, but I promise you that it will someday. That you look in the, at yourself in the mirror, and because you, there's such a tendency to compare yourself to this girl or that girl, and before you know it, you're looking at yourself in the mirror, and you think, well, did God goof? I said, anybody ever think that when God created you, and you believe that he did, do you think he said, oh, nuts, I made a huge mistake here. And, and I said, the thing is, he never makes a mistake. He never has made one, ever. So that means when he created you, he did not make a mistake. He knew exactly how he was going to make you. And a lot of times in my group of girls, I would have special needs, whether it be mental or physical or whatever. And, and you know, to know that God didn't say, oh, shoot, Missed the mark on that one. He said, no, no. When God made you, he knew exactly how he was going to use you and how important you were going to be to him. So I'm going to come around, and I'm going to make sure that every one of you say this because you are going to need this. You're going to need this someday. Maybe not today, but someday, and, and you are going to remember this someday. You're going to remember when I put the microphone in front of you and I said to you, you are absolutely, and you're going to answer me, beautiful. Because that's all God knows how to do is make beautiful. And, you know, they're all so unique, and yet I could have the same word describe every one of them. And it was always a highlight in my year, to be able to, to have that kind of influence and to be able to, be able to communicate to those little girls a very important truth. Oh, I know they're going to grow up here and beauty's only skin deep. But you know, today, especially today, between Facebook and TikTok and all this, I mean, if, you, if you're not a skinny little mini, if you, if you don't look a certain way, I mean, it is abusive. If you are not a part of this group or that group or whatever, it is abusive. And so could this be a wake-up call? It's the book of Esther in there because we need to be reminded that culture is lying to our girls. And Xerxes and all of these officials and eunuchs and all that, all they cared about, they didn't know those girls. They could have cared less about those girls. That just riled me. 
then it says that there was from the tribe of Benjamin, this Jew, and his name was Mordecai. He was son of Jer, son of Shemiel, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So Mordecai, he was the son of Jer. His grandpa was Shemiel, Shemiah, and, and his great-grandpa was Kish. And it was Kish that was alive at the time of the exile, when Nebuchadnezzar came in and the kingdom of Judah was taken into exile. So we're talking four generations here, and I think it's very important that we remember that. It's four generations later to and in your lesson, I had you look up this passage that I go back to many times to remind his parents and grandparents that Judges 2, remember after Joshua died, the very next generation did not even know about Moses. And so what in the world is going on? Three weeks ago, we did a lesson, and I think that I proved to you that God intended for his people to be back in Jerusalem. The reason for the exile was to wake them up, to put them in a 70-year timeout so that they would get back on track and realize that they need to seek the Lord. That's what Jeremiah talks about. He said, but after 70 years, I will bring you back because I have plans for you. I have plans to bring a Savior through you, to give you hope and a future. Because without a Savior, there isn't any hope or future. So in story dealings with Scripture, I am looking at this and I think, really, this story shouldn't even be. There shouldn't even be. This is a, this is a consequence, basically. It's a consequence of disobedience. And so we have Mordecai, who is a good guy. I am not tearing him apart because he has got a wonderful heart. But I think, and it's called grandpa to his grandpa to his dad, something happened, and it's called didn't tell you. Didn't tell you what you needed to know about your God. If they aren't taught, they're not going to know. I mean, Paul took that same kind of analogy. You know, he said, how can you expect someone to believe if they don't know what to believe in? And how are they going to know what to believe in unless they're hearing? And how are they going to hear unless you're willing to tell them? That's what Paul says. So it's the same kind of thing. How can you expect them to know? You just can't expect a, a hour of Sunday school or a youth group or whatever. I mean, they live with you and our responsibility. So I think this is a real kick for parents and grandparents of our responsibility. We've got to make sure that we're living right so that we can pass it down, that they know these stories and somehow I think Mordecai, yeah, he was a good man with a good heart. Because look at it says that among those taken captive from Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. So, I mean, it's explaining to us that his great-grandpa came over and in, in the exile. And now, you know, four generations later, he has been given the responsibility to care for Hadassah. And that's, that's her Jewish name, Hadassah. But remember how Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were given the, the empire's culture name. You know, whether it be the Babylonian name or, you know, here it's the Persian name. Esther was her Persian name. So he had a cousin, Hadassah, whom he brought up because she had no father or mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features. And Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. I mean, how, how wonderful is that? I never questioned his love for her. Now, when the king's order and edict 
had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. Now, I stop there because I hear this so often. They didn't have a they didn't have a choice. They did not have a choice. Mordecai and Esther, they did not have a choice. And I beg to differ. We always have a choice. We always have a choice. And, and you know, right now, just to prove to you, I want you to go forward, even though Esther comes after the book, the, the life of Daniel. But in, in Scripture, Daniel is after the book of Daniel. Uh, Esther is after the book of Daniel. So, um, no, Daniel's after the book of Esther, even though Esther um, came after Daniel. I think you know what I mean. So anyway, go forward in your Bibles to Daniel, and let's just go over. The, I mean, as soon as I read it, you're going to remember because they were highlights in this study. So turn to Daniel chapter 2. And we are, we are reminded that Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and Daniel was given the ability to not only tell him the dream, but to interpret the dream. And then we also know that this dream was of this statue, and I believe that Nebuchadnezzar stopped listening to the interpretation after he heard that this statue, its head was made of gold, and that was the Babylonian Empire. In other words, that's me. And so he's thinking, I am, I'm the kingpin here. And I think that's all he heard because then in Daniel chapter 3, we know that he made an image of gold 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, set up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And he, he had this big, massive statue all, you know, he, it, it was dedicated and everything. And then, then, and then the herald exclaimed loudly, when you hear the instruments, everybody is supposed to bow down. When you hear the music, you fall down and you worship the image of King Nebuchadnezzar. And whoever does not fall down in worship verse 6, will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Verse 10, you have issued a decree, O king, that everyone, everyone who hears the music must fall down. And so, same in verse 12, I mean, it was sent to everyone and then they found out that there were some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were not following the rules. Verse 16. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are brought before King Nebuchadnezzar, and these three had the nerve. They, they had the courage. They had the strength to face Nebuchadnezzar, look right at him, and say, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, King, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, it's very clear. They know that it's going to be the fiery furnace for them. And it's very clear to them that the second they step into that fiery furnace, they are dead. I mean, there's no way that they could be talking among themselves and say, well, you know, we just might make it through this. We might, you know, maybe it won't be quite as hot. We might, you know, be singed or burned a little bit, but we might come through this. No, they knew, and then especially seven times hotter, they knew there was no chance. And yet they dared stand up and look right into the face of that king. And say, we are not going to defend ourselves on this. We are not going to do it. 
We just can't do it. We won't do it. I mean, it was so firm. That was the choice, wasn't it? It was a choice. And the reason why I know is because another part of Daniel, remember Antichus Epiphanes? Remember when he was in control in the Greek empire and he was, he was just the worst of the worst, remember? And remember he was, he was just back and forth, north and south, north and south. And then he was, he was just, again, one on God's goofy in the head kind of guys. And so he took it out on God's people, it said. He took it out on God's people. But there were some of so-called God's people, our, our pastor calls them unsaved Christians, who in name only, who are, who are not strong. Or maybe they made a commitment to Christ once, but they didn't work at it, and so they became weak. Or like Mordecai, they weren't told the stories, they weren't taught, and so you get weak. You can still hold the same, well, I'm still a Jew, and, you know, we can still, you know, keep, uh, keep to our little worship, but, um, you know, it really didn't mean it wasn't a lifestyle. No, they had gravitated right into the culture of the Persians. So, you look at this story and, and you look at how they then say to Antichus Epiphanes, um, we're, we're changing teams. We are, because they probably saw the bloodbath. They saw the families that were probably killed, God's people. They saw all what was happening. And they said, no, no, you, you know, we're, we're on your side. We're on your side. We are, we are going to recant. We take that back. We're on your side. And, you know, and, and to, cause he, I can see him putting his arm around him just saying, oh, you won't be sorry, buddies. You won't be sorry. See, it's so important that we learn that we have got to stay true and strong. And that's why that one promise is so important, that he promises to give us the strength when we need it because we are going to have to make choices. But look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They made the choice. Yeah, we're going, on, we're going in the furnace. And then flip over a couple chapters to chapter 6. And we know this story so well. But you know, these officials, after Daniel was put into a high position, they were jealous, and so they wanted so badly to, to get rid of Daniel, and they knew that they didn't have any goods on him. So they said, the only way he's, we're going to get him is through his God. And so they went to Darius, and you know, they, I mean, they just, kind of worked him over within the area that he was, I mean, he loved to be glorified. I mean, that's human nature. And so they just kept showering all these things on him. And they said, um, how about it, you know, if that everybody, everybody has, you put a decree, stamp on there. So no one has an excuse. No one can get out of this. Anybody who prays to any other God but you, that you will throw them in the lion's den. Anyone who prays to any other God or, no, you are the one. And of course that appeased to Darius. And so, you know, get the stamp. I will stamp her right here. So no excuses. So the king Darius put the decree in writing. Now verse 10 of chapter 6. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. So... I'm still taken by that, aren't you? That after he learned the decree, and there again, he knew lion's den. You walk into a lion's den full of hungry lions, you pretty much know you're not going to make it out of that one either. And yet he too, he went to his window and it was open and he faced Jerusalem because this is what he always did. He looked toward home. 
So three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. He never wavered. After he heard the decree, he still did not waver. He still knew where his strength and his power came, and he prayed three times a day, even though he knew that his life could be over. So don't you think, because Esther, that whole story came after the fact, don't you think stories like this would have been heard like about, I mean, the fiery furnace, the den of lions, that Mordecai somehow would have known, but apparently not, that there was a choice he could have. And I, I tried looking between the lines. I was just so waiting for him when this decree was set out and, and they escorted Esther away. Why didn't he shout, Lord, help us? Even if he was saying, Lord, I get it. We should have been back in Jerusalem. We shouldn't have even been in here playing around in this culture. It all looked so easy and carefree and happy before, but now this is a consequence. I, I was just waiting for him to say something like that. But he didn't. And so Esther was brought in and was obviously picked. In verse 9, chapter 2, the girl pleased him and won his favor. Of course she did. And you might say, well, obviously Esther was a beautiful woman, and, you know, I'm sure she had a beautiful mother, and it was, you know, she has good genes. But can't you see God's hand? God created her and knew that she needed to be beautiful because even though... They shouldn't have been there. We have a God of grace who is still going to work it all out. So because she was, was picked and was ple pleased him, immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. I mean, even that word should just make your hair stand on end. She is now brought into the best place in the harem. Ugh. Esther had not revealed her nationality. Mordecai had forbidden her family background. Why? Because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Now, I don't know how how old Esther is, but I know that she is old enough to make decisions. She's old enough. She, too, could have said, not going to do it. I mean, it just appalls me to think that this kind of behavior is so totally against what our God would put his hand of blessing on. But she did not reveal that they were Jewish, she did not reveal. And why did she tell them about her background? Because she's probably so grateful to Mordecai for what he's done. And so he's, she's listening to him. And he, look at that, because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. He had forbidden her to tell that they were Jewish, that they were God's people. And why? Because he was weak. Because he was scared. He did not have the strength to stand and admit. Now, turn in your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew 10. I just want you to see, this is Jesus talking in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says this in verse 32. And I think it's very important that we put these pieces together because scripture all works intertwined. And now we hear Jesus himself in verse 32, chapter 10 of Matthew, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. 
But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. I, I don't think that's hard to understand. If you're not willing to make a stand, Jesus is saying, then there's no point of acknowledging you before my Father. Now, we know that God the Father knows everything too, but isn't it just a, a great picture in your mind to think that someday when you're face-to-face -face with Jesus and he, know, he summons us by name and we belong to him, and doesn't it just get you excited when you think that according to that verse, Jesus will turn to his Father and say, Oh, I just, I know you know her, but, or I know you know him, but I just want to introduce you. I want to introduce you. And then he calls us by name. She acknowledged me. And so I want to acknowledge her before you. I think that's something that we should want. And then Romans Romans chapter 1, you know this verse, where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. See, that's why I believe they had a choice. I think we have scripture proof. God never intended for them to keep the fact that they were his a secret. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of anyone who chooses to believe it. So, every day, verse 11, every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Yeah, he loved her. He's a nervous wreck. I think there could be a tinge of guilt, maybe, knowing that he didn't make a stand. He did not stop this from happening. Every day he walked back and forth near that courtyard where that harem was, and he wanted to know what was happening. Verse 12, before girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments, Prescribed for the women six months with oil and myrrh, or oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. All exterior. I think King Xerxes has a problem with dry skin. I think he doesn't like the feel of dry skin on his ladies. And I don't think he likes prickly legs either. It's all exterior. In the 12 months of beauty treatment, six months with oil, six with perfumes and cosmetics, this is how she would go to the king. Oh, smelling good. Lotioned all up. Glistening, probably. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, this girl that was picked, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem in the care of Shazgaz, the king's other eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. Nauseating, isn't it? I mean, verse 14, I mean, we're, we're not stupid. We know what's going on in verse 14. She goes in the evening and she returns in the morning. Of course we know what's going on. And then her life is basically over. And unless she is called again by the king, she's stuck there in the concubine. And she would not return to the king unless he was, he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. I mean, can you imagine how many never went again? When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihel, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. 
So I don't know. She just didn't ask for anything. But she went. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. I think that is in there so that we know that on this particular day, of this particular month, of this particular year, that happened. She had to walk into the king's bedchamber. And she lost her virginity. And, you know, that, that sounds, I just had to say it. Because this is so not what God had said. This, remember how he said, don't be yoked with an unbeliever. How he told the kingdom of Judah, don't marry outside of your people. How then Paul continued, don't be yoked with an unbeliever. You don't have anything in common. It's just dangerous. It's not a wise move. Don't do it. And so either she didn't know or I mean, there, there it happened. That's why I dare say this story should have never been in the first place. But seeing that human nature sometimes falls into these human traps... God is still working. I don't know. On verse 14, in the evening she would go there. I, I would have been screaming bloody murder. I'm a Jew. God said. God's word says. And then whatever you do, I am not going to go against what God said. And look at the consequences. Now, it says that Esther won the favor of everyone, and of course she won the favor of King Xerxes. Now, verse 17, now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. Surprise, surprise. Oh, don't you just see God in this? Even though I think he was working his grace with tears rolling down his face. I have to say that. Because this was not what he wanted. And yet because of his unconditional love and his grace and his mercy, he is willing to work this. But he is not doing it with a big smile on his face. He said. Look what it says at the end of verse 17. And so he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So that's it? Just because the crown goes on her head, she's now queen? Did he get to know everything about her that night? I doubt it. Could care less. I bet he didn't ask her one question. Oh, he might ask her one. What is your name? Because he does know her name. But other than that, so, I mean, I'm sitting here studying and I'm thinking, now, did they get married? Isn't that a king and queen? They're married? Apparently not. Apparently that doesn't matter. Apparently Vashti and Xerxes weren't married either. Maybe these other nobles and officials Maybe they're women. Maybe they weren't married either. They just controlled them. They just used them. They just abused them. You know, you know who this reminded me of? Jeffrey Epstein. Didn't that remind you? And also, also that girl, that his helper. Just exactly. I mean, can't you just hear Jeffrey Epstein, you know, promising them, oh, do I have a movie picture for you in Hollywood? It's just going to cost you this. Or, oh, do I have a modeling job for you? I mean, it's the same sex trafficking that's going on back then as now. This is what I think the book of Esther is there to keep showing us. This is what 
This is what a world looks like without a savior. And fortunately, we have one and we've chosen to accept him. But for many that don't choose him and live all for themselves, this is what it looks like and these are the consequences. And to me, it is just absolutely aghast. I think it's one of the worst chapters, but yet it was so enlightening to say, this is the same principle. This is sinful human nature. And it's in every generation. If you don't have the blood of Christ and you tell, you've not taken that humbling walk to accept his grace and mercy and his blood sacrifice and the Holy Spirit that then... And see, this is where I go into that Proverbs 3 again, that 5 and 6. That's why I know God loves it when we acknowledge him. Solomon said, and when you, when you acknowledge him, he will direct your path. Why are we in such a mess? Is because they never acknowledged him. So now she is queen. So he set a crown on her head, made her queen. And I, I went back to Genesis chapter 2, and I, I saw that, you know, where God says, it's not good for man to be alone. So I'm going to make a soulmate. I'm going to make a helpmate for him. And they were going to be the team. They were the team. And then remember when... God said in Genesis 2 that the two shall become one flesh. I mean, God ordained marriage. I say the word ordained because it is a sacred institution that is not to be played around with because the two now are become one. And we live, too, in a culture where, I mean, I'm looking at this chapter and I'm thinking, they don't get married? Apparently, Esther never got married to this guy. And yet she was queen. And they knew Genesis. Or didn't they? Maybe no one taught them. The way God set this institution up. So now he's, the king's going to, verse 18, the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet. For all his nobles and officials, he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Oh, yeah, he's happy, man. So is, so is everybody else. So are his, his nobles and officials. Whew, came up with a good one there. He's happy again. All superficial Verse 19, when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. That's troubling, isn't it? Now, yeah, before he was, he was paid. This was troubling because he needed to buy the harem to see if she was okay. But this was troubling because any time, well, you know, you know the story of Lot. Remember when Abraham said, your choice, which which part of the land do you want? What, any, anyone? Oh, Abraham says, choose whichever one. Oh, that looks great. That's green. I mean, the, he looked at it with physical eyes, never seeing that what he was picking was Sodom and Gomorrah. And how he sat, you know, he sat outside the city. You read the story, very interesting, how sin is a slippery slope that just keeps progressing itself. And so, before, he's living outside the city, and then he's living inside the city. And by crack, it isn't long before he's, uh, he's mayor of the town. I mean, he is an official, and this is what happens at the king's. They are assembled at the king's gate. That is where politics, where laws were made, discussions were made, um, Highly influential people. I think Mordecai had worked himself up into a, a place there. So he was assembled at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality. Again, we read, 
just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done while, she was, while he was bringing her up. Verse 21, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, two of the king's officials who guarded the doorway became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. You know, they got some bug in their bonnet and right away they conspired to kill the king. And But Mordecai found out about it told Esther, who in turn reported to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. I mean, how can you not see? This is not coincidence. Right place, right people, right time. You can't ever say that that's coincidence. This is God's gracious and merciful hand. Now, when the report was investigated and found to be true, bring out the FBI. The two officials were hanged on gallows. So they, they brought their investigators out, and they found out, oh, yeah, this is true. Oh, those two guys, they were hung on the gallows. All of this was recorded in the book of the annals in the present thing. And I just would love to put in parentheses to be useful later. But how God is the God of details. And that's the end of the chapter. But I sat there and I thought, Lord, I know you want me to see something about these details. Because it was right place, right person, right time, investigated, guilty, written in the annals, right in front of the king. These are details. And I thought, yeah, it's good for us to remember that we have a God of details. I found, and now where I, where I thought of a good detailed place was in Exodus when, when uh, God told Moses how to build the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. And sure enough, I found it in verse 9 of Exodus 25. God says to Moses, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. God's attention to detail is on purpose. You read about that tabernacle. I mean, it's this ring is one inch separate from this. I mean, it is so detailed. But I am discovering that God's attention to detail is just to show his glory. Just to show us again how holy and glory he is. Full of glory he is. Those details. He misses no detail. And his attention, it, it just shows he's not, oh, that's good enough or, you know, a big picture. No, we have a God who is intricately detailed. And I thought to myself, there, that's what I needed to hear. I needed to be reminded that God is concerned with every detail of my life. And he's concerned with every detail of your life. So that means you can take anything and everything to him because he already knows, because he's the God of details. I think that's why Peter wrote in 1 Peter, that familiar verse, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. He knows every detail. So this is quite a story. But what a way to end that we serve a God who knows everything, every detail about us, and he wants to be concerned about it all. But it better open our eyes to what the consequences of worldly behavior looks like, what self really looks like. 
to dare to be a Daniel, even though it might cost you. Because the way I look at it, he'll make it worth our while. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this lesson. I mean, as we watch this parade of, of Miss Persian Empire, and we're just aghast at this behavior. But Father, we see it in our world today, and the, and the answer to the reason why is so simple. People need to know they need Jesus, and that is the answer. It always has been, it always will be. Father, help us not to shirk back. Help us to come to you and ask, acknowledge you, and to have you come through with what you've promised. You will direct our path. You will give, you will give us the strength and the courage. And Father, the best part is to know that when we stand up for you, that we have a Savior who will then stand up for us in front of you. That should really mean something to us. Thank you for just jolting us in this story. And we will give you all the praise because you deserve it all in Jesus' name. Amen.